0: good to be together, let's pray and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for the great opportunity to have your word read to us and we pray now, please, that you would give us attentive hearts and minds to what it says. Uh, please work amongst us by your Holy Spirit in a way that uh, goes beyond our comprehension and understanding and transform and change as we pray. Uh, do great things, we pray, amongst us, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well today we start Summerfest, uh, or tomorrow at least uh, 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 properly, but uh, tonight it's kind of all kicking off. And uh, we've chosen to look at a verse of the Bible, chapter 5 of Revelation, verse 9, which I think will be appropriate for this week and this next month as we particularly focus on mission. We're always on about mission, but uh, we've got a particular season, of course. Now, the thing I want to do with you tonight is just really focus chapter 5, verse 9 on one word. So if you grab your Bibles, open up to chapter 5, verse 9. The sermon really is about the word new. Do you see the word there in verse 9? And they sang a new song saying, the whole sermon really is about the word new, understanding what the word means, understanding what it means in context and my promise is for you tonight that if you can understand what the word new means in context it'll, it'll transform everything, it'll change the way you see the world, change the way you see your life, change the way what matters in life, everything gets revolutionised if you can understand the meaning of the word new. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well the world, I know what the word new means, it's not that hard to work it out and it's not. The word new uh, is just something that talks about a thing that had not existed before, new, a thing that had not been seen before, new, that's just what the word new means. But if you put it into context, it changes everything. So let me do that with you and put it in context. Now, it comes in the context of this, le- this book, uh, a letter, actually, a prophecy, uh, an epistle from, uh, from the l- a book called Revelation. Revelation singular, not plurals, by the way, just one revelation. And uh, this book is a book that many people find uh, scary to look at. They uh, get terrified of the beasts and the imagery and the blood and the plagues and all the rest, it all just seems very strange and so lots of people avoid it. But if you can dig into it and begin to see what it's about, it's quite profound and astonishingly important for us. So let me take you through from verse 1 through to chapter 5, very quickly, so don't freak out too much, but come back to chapter 1, verse 1. "...the revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave Him to show His servants what must soon take place." He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. The revelation, the revelation, it's the apocalypse, it's the unveiling, that's what the language of revelation is capturing up here. And if you imagine, you can see behind me here, there's curtains, uh, an unveiling, a revelation, an apocalypse, is to actually have the curtains pulled apart to see what's behind the curtains and unveiling, you see. And what's happening here is that uh, John, who uh, has received this revelation, is in a particular context and circumstance, he's imprisoned on an island called Patmos because of his testimony for the Lord. He's in the Roman Empire, which is uh, becoming brutal towards Christians. And what God brings him is a revelation of what's really going on. Despite the circumstances and the situation he's in, he is now given to see what is actually happened. He's given to see spiritual realities behind the physical reality, if you like. And what he sees is a draw dropping insight into the truth about the universe. Behind the apparent mayhem and godlessness and wickedness and hostility of people towards God, what we find actually is that God is in control. And that's the picture. Now, come with me, let me show you some sense of it. Chapter 1, uh, verse 12, he is given to see a vision of the risen Lord Jesus. Verse 13, among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were blazing fire, his feet were bronze. It's a picture of the exalted risen Lord Jesus in all his glory and power. And John, when he sees him, verse 17, falls at his feet as though dead. He is terrified by the power and majesty and greatness of the Lord Jesus now exalted. What he sees when it's all revealed, when the unveiling happens, is that this baby who grew to a man who was crucified on a cross is actually the all-conquering Lord of the universe. But more than that, that Lord Jesus gives a series of letters, chapters 2 and 3, and then chapter 4, He is taken into the very throne room of God. Have a look at chapter 4, flip over there... After this I'm rushing because we've got a lot to get through tonight so we'll see how we go. You come to chapter 4, after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open into heaven, the great unveiling to see into the very throne room of the universe. And what he sees is there, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after that. At once I was in the Spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And verse three and four describes the one sitting on it, with the appearance of jasper and ruby, rainbow shone and so on. It's all the, um, it's all the, uh, the, the the shape of things you would expect of an appearing of God in all its glory. The throne that flashes with lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. Verse five. It's a glorious picture, blazing with power. And what he sees is God seated on the throne. Um, and that God who was seated on the throne is surrounded, in verse 6, by four living creatures. These are very strange creatures who represent the various powerful animals of the universe. But then around those living creatures, um, you also see verse 10, uh, 24 elders who were seated around those four living creatures. And the thing that occurs is that each time the living creatures are before the Lord God, they, day and night, verse 8, never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They praise God who's seated on the throne. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honour... The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, worshipping him forever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things and have their being. So, what you have is the creatures praising God on the throne. You have the 24 elders seated around them falling down, praising God on the throne. And in fact, if you come across to chapter 5, verse 11, you find that around them are numbered thousands upon thousands of angels, ten thousands times ten thousand, they encircle the throne and they cry out in a loud voice, worthy and they praise. And further to that verse 13, you hear every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne to the Lamb, be praise and honour. There is what you have this sort of a circle of praise, the, the creatures, the 24 elders who fall down praising and then the angels who praise and then the every living creature that praises, it's kind of like this Mexican wave of praise that rolls out from the throne and back into the throne. It's an incredible vision and it's given to John for a reason, it's given to John to be a great encouragement to him. Because the message to John in all of this is that things may seem to be against God, God may appear to be out of touch, the world may be, appear to be unruly and doing as it pleases... But at the centre of the universe, when you pull back the veil, behind appearances, God is on His throne. God, the great and glorious God, is ruling sovereignly. And all the universe is praising Him and recognising His glory and greatness. It was a hugely important message for John to hear, who was in prison, who was being um, impacted by the Roman Empire, who was feeling the weakness of himself and he gets this word to say, the God that you trust in John, he's got it in hand. All is right if you have the eyes to see. A great encouragement to John and a great encouragement to us. I don't know what your Christmas was like. Uh, For many of us, Christmas is a a great time of family and friends and food and so on. But for many of you, it's not like that. For many of you, it's a very difficult time. I talked to one young woman uh, a couple of weeks ago who said she is so much looking forward to Christmas this year because she doesn't have to do it with family. For her, it was an opportunity to actually make a decision just to be on her own with a couple of friends because to be with family was so distressing. Now, that might be your context. You might be amongst us tonight with all kinds of strains and stresses, uh, the sense of perhaps depression and fear and anxiety, wondering about your future, wondering about relationships, uh, always finding yourself beaten and battered by friendship around you and feeling gossiped against and It could be all kinds of stresses. And I want to say to you tonight that the Word of God says to you tonight that if you have got your trust in this God, if you have put your faith in the God of the Bible and he is ruling. He is seated on the throne and he has promised to work everything in your life for good. Not the good of comfort and leisure, but the good of you being formed into the image of Christ. He has your life in hand, you can rest in him and trust him for whatever the future is. I was talking to someone this afternoon who's anxious about a child that they're carrying, a baby in the womb. And we were able to finish the conversation reflecting on the fact that God is on the throne. He is in control. Whatever happens, whatever the doctors, they are all fearful. Whatever happens, you can trust God for your child. It's a great message to us of God's power and sovereignty. Now with all that praise that's going on in the heavens, there's a particular shape to it and one of the key verses there is chapter 4 verse 11. Let's look at the praise that happens. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Now you boil down that song of praise that is being sung to God and has been sung to God from all eternity. Uh, They praise God because He's worthy. Now a little comprehension, if you've got your Bibles there, I want you to look at verse 11 and answer the question, it's a simple question, why do they they say He's worthy? Why is He worthy of receiving praise, glory and honour? Have a look at the verse, it gives you the answer. Why is he worthy of all this praise? Verse 11. That's right. What did you say? Ah, very good. Okay. I was trying to trap you there for a moment. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Why is he worthy of praise? Because for... You created all things, a very simple bit of comprehension but sometimes it's important just to look at what the text says, you are worthy our Lord and God to receive glory and honour for you created all things because you created. That's to say, God is worthy of praise because from nothing, He creates everything. It's because of His will to bring everything into existence. And just to be alert to this, as we haven't got time to spend much time on it, but just be appreciating, this is not a praise of some creature who is bigger and creates other creatures. You mustn't think of God as some big being who creates other beings. No, 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 no. The difference between what is created and the Creator is as vast, vaster, than the difference between the author and the story the author creates. The difference between the author and the story is not big, small... It's completely other than the story. So much more profoundly significant as who you are, that the story you create comes from nothing. God is the God who exists and has life in Himself. We exist as the story that He has written, that He has spoken into existence. You only exist by the will of that God, such as His glory and greatness, His otherness. And so forever he is praised by these elders. You are worthy for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. We exist by his purpose. What an extraordinary thing to say of God that we are able to praise him for it. But then we come to chapter 5. We're moving closer to our word new. We come to chapter 5. And something extraordinary happens in chapter 5, something astonishing, something breaks the pattern of eternity. There's a kind of a tension that begins in the throne room of heaven. Uh, Have a read through with me, chapter 5 verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne... A scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now what is this? Most commentators recognize I think rightly, that the scroll and its seals represents the purposes of God to be unrolled, to be moved forward. you see they 're writ the purposes of God are are written in the scroll on the seals and to be breaking them is to move God's purposes forward. And so this purpose of the future is held by God's hand. And verse 2, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll to move God's purposes forward? But the tension, verse 3, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could could open the scroll or even look inside it. And verse 4, this causes great distress. John weeps because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. Who is it who will bring forward God's purposes? There's no one worthy, it seems, to do this. A great tension exists. Now that tension is resolved eventually with the wonderful declaration, verse 5, that one of the elders said to me, don't weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and it's... There is one of great power and might and worth who can open the scrolls and move God's purposes forward. And so uh, John turns, verse 6, to look at this great powerful one and verse 6, he looks and sees a lamb. Not even a full-grown sheep, but a baby lamb looking as though it had been slain. Not even a very healthy lamb, but one that had been killed and was still stumbling around, if you like. And what you have here in verses 5 and 6 is one of the most beautiful, jarring, poetic images you'll ever see in the Bible. And it is worth just pausing for a moment and reflecting. I think it's one of the most powerful images because of the clash that goes on here. What, you, what you're told is of the great conqueror, the great warrior, the powerful ruler, a lion of the tribe of kings and he turns to see this magnificent figure only to have his eyes fall on the weakest of all creatures, a lamb and a very unhealthy one at that. Now I don't know, um, uh, this is hard to do this one in various contexts but have you ever heard of someone... Uh, who's been talked about a great deal. I've had over the years uh, occasions where I've been told about a person and their their, their their achievements and their greatness and their their significance and how important they are and I've been told about this amazing figure and, um, and I finally get to meet them and I, I arrive to see them and look around and I find actually they're much shorter than I thought they'd be, do you know, and I find myself going, oh I thought you'd be at least six foot but you know a bit more like Hugh or something like this but uh, you end up being a bit more like uh, well not even Dan because you're a big man as well but there we go do you know you expect this figure to be great and big well Jesus is like this until until you realize that the clash of the image the great conquering lion who turns out to be a lamb, is a hugely fitting clash of imagery because it's him being the lamb that's slain that makes him the triumphant lion. What you discover is in God's universe, the thing that makes you great and triumphant is your humility, is your humble, sacrificial service. Obedient to the will of the Father. What makes you great in the universe, in God's universe, is not the prestigious power of your job. It's not your physique, it's not how powerful you look. It's not even the friends you have and the wealth. These things are of no account in God's universe. What makes you triumphant and great in God's universe is being a lamb. Being a humble, sacrificial servant. Philippians chapter 2 teaches exactly this. It's because he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, that the Father exalted him and gave him the name above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. Now all of this is not the point of the sermon actually, it's just on the way towards the point of the sermon. But there's so many rich ideas here that I wanted to point these things out. Now, upon seeing this figure, verse 6, we're getting now close. Upon seeing this figure, the lamb that looks as though it had been slain, you come down to verse 8 and you find that the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. They were falling down before God on the throne. And they now fall down and worship God. The Lamb, which tells you something about who the Lamb is. But they fall down before the Lamb. And verse 9, they sing a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll, and so on. You see, we're now up to that word, new. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, a new song. Now, what I want to do with you now is go forward a little bit and look at the song that's sung and then come back again to the word new. Look at the song, verse 9. What is this new song? Well, it's a song that sings about the lamb that was slain. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. Now, the statement that Jesus was slain is a statement of fact. It's just a fact of history. Jesus was the one who was hung up on a cross outside of Jerusalem uh, in about 33 AD. Um, he was uh, killed as a statement of fact under Pontius Pilate, dead and buried. These things are just true in fact, time, space, history. But what follows after that little statement, because you were slain, what follows is an insight into the impact of that event, the significance of that event. You were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language and people and nation. What the death of that lamb achieved was something wholly beyond imagining. That humble death, that giving up of himself, purchased men and women for God. By his bloodshed. Now, men and women and children die every day. Um, You you don't need me to tell you that. It's um, a sad truth of our existence. And at this level, uh, Jesus' death was like every other death. He shed his blood, in this case brutally, on a cross, terrible execution. But many other thousands of people had died on a cross. Many other people, all of us, die at one point or another. But something happened in his death that has not ever happened in anyone else's death. He died because the sin of the world was placed on him. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus died precisely because a transfer happened. You and I die because we are sinful. The wages of sin is death. Jesus had no sin in him, there was no deceit in his mouth and yet he still died. He died because the sin of another was placed upon him, my sin and the sin of all of those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus. He died for sin by taking on himself the sins of others because he accepted the guilt of humanity and suffered humanity's fate under the judgment, the just judgment of God and because he did that in our place, he paid. And he purchased, he purchased men and women from out under death and sin and Satan to be brought into relationship with God, the Holy God, in forgiveness, to be adopted as sons and daughters. He took our punishment so that we don't have to. He gave, we, took, we gave him our sin, he took our sin upon himself and gave us his righteous standing and status before God so that we can now have eternity secured, purchased from every tribe, language, people and nation. You know, biblical Christianity, just to say, is not about you getting better and maybe God accepting you. Biblical Christianity is that you need a saviour. You need someone to do what you couldn't do for yourself, pay. You need someone to do what you couldn't do, be condemned and judged so that you don't have to be. So that by trusting in His work on my behalf, I might be forgiven and received and taken in, purchased to be God's person forever. Biblical Christianity is about grace. Now, more of this result is that the death, the blood of Jesus didn't just purchase us for God, but it made people a kingdom of priests to serve God. From all nations, from every tribe, language, people and nation. And what you have here is the work of Jesus removes all ethnic barriers. There's a lot of talk about racism in our world today. The cross of Jesus is the answer to racism. The Christian message has the answer to racism. Because for all have sinned and fall short of the glory. There is no one different. Whatever nation, race you come from, you're all equal. And if you receive Christ, you're all made one in Christ. There is now no Jew or Gentile, slave nor free. We are all one, whatever our colour, whatever our background, whatever our ethnicity. It's a powerful message that we have for our world. Now, with all of that background, look again at the word new. This song is called a new song. What does it mean calling it a new song? Well, what's the meaning of the word new? The word new just means something that hasn't existed before, something that's not been seen before, new. But, there's much more going on here. When you add the word new to to the word song, you get a little phrase, new song. And that little phrase, new song, has been used before in the Bible and it's got an important history. And that little phrase has a flavour to it which is more than just the idea of something that's not existed before, something that's not been seen before. A new song, you see, it could just mean a song that hadn't been sung before, it could just mean that but it means something far more and I didn't realise this in the early years of my Christian life because let me show you one of the places where this new song is used, come back to Psalm 98, Psalm 98, grab your Bible, turn back there when I was converted into a little church uh, in Sydney that I was uh, part of, um, we would sometimes get the song leader who would get up in front of church and uh, read Psalm 98 verse 1 and say, sing to the Lord a new song for He has done marvellous things and they'd say, so we're going to sing a new, new song tonight, we haven't sung a song before this, we haven't ever sung this. and the Bible says, to, it commands us to sing to the Lord new songs, so we're going to, sing, we're going to bring a new song in, in tonight. And I thought, oh, okay, cool, the Bible does say that, new song. But that's not what it's talking about. What does he mean in Psalm 98 to sing to the Lord a new song? Well, come with me through it and I'll show you. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known. He has revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp. You see, sing to the Lord a new song. Now what's being said here? The psalmist isn't just saying, find a song you haven't sung before and sing it. The psalmist is saying, sing a new kind of song. Sing a new kind of song appropriate to the new context you're in. And the new context you're in is the the context of salvation. And so burst into jubilant kind of song. No longer sing the songs of of, um, lament of mourning, of grief, sing a new song, a song of joy because of the new thing God's done, the new salvation that He's brought. You see, new song, that little phrase, doesn't just mean a song that's not been sung, it means a new song given the new context with a new tone. Come across to Isaiah 42 and you'll see something similar, come across to Isaiah 42, passage we had read. Verse 10, you see the same phrase there, "'Sing to the Lord a new song.'" His praises from the ends of the earth. Sing to the Lord a new song. Now, why? Well, because of verse 5. "'This is what God, the Lord, says, "'the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, "'who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, "'who gives breath to his people, life to those who walk on it. "'I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. "'I will take take your hand.'" I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. He's talking about a great servant, a saviour. He'll be the one to come to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon. I the Lord, this is my name and so on. Sing to the Lord a new song. Why? Because God's about to do a new thing. He's about to bring a servant who will save his world. Isaiah 53, the servant of Isaiah 53, who will die in the place of sinners. New song doesn't just mean a song that hadn't been sung. It is a reference to a new stage of God's actions in history. It's saying God has done, is doing something new. So sing a song appropriate to that new thing. Now when you come back to Revelation chapter 9 yes verse chapter 5 verse 9 yes they did sing a song that hadn't been sung before it was a new song But get this it's not as if it's not as if the 24 elders and all the living creatures were were kind of at supper at night you know having their coffee standing around in a circle moaning about having to sing chapter 4 verse 11 one more time it's not as if they were standing around saying, if I have to sing chapter 4 again, I'm out of this church. I'm going to go and find a church that sings new songs. Give me a new song. They weren't sick of singing chapter 4 verse 11. They didn't just need a new song. They were thrilled to sing chapter 4 verse They've been doing it all eternity. It wasn't like it had gotten stale. Why then did they sing a new song? Because something new has happened in the universe. This new song marks a new stage in the movement of God's purposes in history. Such that the song that had been sung for all eternity, about God being worthy because he'd created, has now been eclipsed. And there's a new song, now sung in heaven. Get that. This is the big point I want to make with you tonight. The pattern of eternity changed. And my question for us tonight is, what could have happened that made that pattern change? What could be of such significance, of such immense significance, that a song that had been sung forever in eternity has now been eclipsed by a new song? What could have brought that about? the death of the Lamb of God on a cross 2,000 years ago to purchase men and women for God. That's what happened. And that's my sermon tonight. I've got three big points to make yet. But friends, that's the message tonight. What could cause the song of great worth and wonder that had been sung forever to change, such that a new song comes, the death of the Lamb of God, who by His blood purchased sinners to be saved and made a kingdom and priests to serve God. The death of the Lamb of God that saved eclipsed the creation song. You get it? Let me help you see why it matters to understand that. And I've got three big implications that flow from it. You ready? Here we go. First one is this. When you understand what's happened in eternity in the heavens, that the song has changed, a new song has appeared, it tells you about the worth of Jesus... The event of his death on a cross pushes the wonder of creation to one side. Creation is astonishing. God is worthy of praise because he created. But salvation, no, no, actually the manner of our salvation by the self-giving of the Son of God the fact that he gave himself up to be slain by taking on himself the sin of the world, in humble obedience to the will of his loving father who desired the salvation of sinners, that Jesus did that, made him worthy of a new song, caused the heavens to now sing something new. You know, I may not be saying something amazingly new to hear that Jesus is worthy, but what I'm wanting to do with you tonight is help you see from a new perspective why it is the case, that he is worthy. You see, that thing that happened back then outside of Jerusalem, when he died on a cross, it shook the universe. God's Son was crucified to purchase men and women. Eternity held its breath as the Son of God went to the cross. Angels long to look into it. He is of immense worth in his death and resurrection, in purchasing us for God. And anything that minimises or diminishes or crowds out the significance of the cross of Christ is to be cast out from us. Works theology does all of that actually and that's why the Bible is hostile towards the idea that you can save yourself by your own efforts. Not only doesn't it work, but it takes the glory away from the Saviour who did everything necessary to purchase us. Nothing else needs to be added. We ought to respond in humble gratitude to the worth of Jesus. There's the first thing that flows out from this, the worth of who Jesus is. The second thing is that flows out from seeing the new song is that... We have a need to be saved and there's no other way to be saved. We have a need to be saved and there's no other way to be saved. It required the death of Jesus to purchase men and women for God. Our only hope of being saved is because of the death of Jesus. Now how can I say all of that? Because when God pays such a price it means there can't be any other way. And this is such an important point, let me illustrate it with uh, an old illustration I've used before, but it's the story of Aaron Ralston. I guess many of you have not heard of Aaron Ralston. Aaron Ralston, uh, an American man who was uh, into adventure canyoning. And so uh, in Utah, the state of Utah, some years ago now he was canyoning in a very isolated part. There was, this is not a place where people travel. Um, and he was on his own and he's rappelling down a rock face, and as he's climbing down the rock face, he puts his hand in a crevice, or, or along the side of a rock, only to have another massive boulder tip over onto his, onto his hand, and trap, pin his hand into in, the crevice between the rocks. So this massive tons of rock fell upon his wrist, and pinned him there. Now he began by crying, help, 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 <laughs> help me. But this is not a place where buses turn up, you see. This is not a place where there's a road. It's just wilderness. There's no one there. People don't ever go there much at all. And he's pinned. And so he's pinned there for five and a half days. It's, uh, he wrote a book about his whole uh, experience called 127 Hours. There's a movie, I think, of the same name, 127 Hours. He's pinned there, um, trying to find a way to get his hand out, but he can't. And so here's what he does. Now, trigger warning. I know how many of you are scheme, squeamish, ready for this. Here's what he does. So just, ready, freak out. He, he bends his forearm and breaks the bones of his forearm. Crack. Gets a pen knife out of his back pocket, which was fairly blunt, Apparently. But he then saws through all the skin, the muscle, the tendons and so on and cuts his arm off at his forearm and so pulls his arm away, leaves his hand all pinned there, pulls his arm away, I think climbs down another 500 metres, 500 miles of rock and then hikes a thousand kilometres to safety and swims across an ocean and then is is rescued you see, he finally makes it out and he's he he is he's healed up and he's, he's alive and well, and then of course as Americans do, he goes on the inspirational speaking circuit, where he travels the world telling all the things that he did. Now, just to, I want you to imagine for a moment, though, he is at a conference where he's speaking, and uh, his arm is still pinned back at the rock there, and. Um, He's, he's written books about the fortitude and courage that he showed and how you can, uh, you can overcome all the odds and this kind of thing. He's speaking at this conference, only to have a young man come up to him at the end of the conference and say to him, um, Utah Canyon, was that the name of the, was the canyon called, blah, blah, blah. yeah, that's the canyon. I've, I've canyoned there as well, Aaron, and I've been down that particular rock face. Oh, have you? Yes, yes, yes. And as you go down the rock face, the rock that fell on your wrist was it shaped like this? And, the, and Aaron goes, Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the rock. It's um, a, uh, yeah, very particular rock. I've been up and down that face many, many times. And do you know what? Um, I've experienced where that rock is tilted uh, into that space where you got trapped. And I found that if you just pushed it a little this way, it pops back up again. Now, how do you think Aaron would respond? Oh, no, oh, (laughs) hasn't got that one. (laughs) Then he'd go, oh, and he'd be going to himself, what, what, like, gee, if only I'd known that, I wouldn't have had to sever my arm off, right? Now, here's the deal. I made that conversation up because that conversation's never happened, right? That never happened because what do you think Aaron Ralston was doing for five and a half days? Trying every which way to move the rock, to get it off his wrist. Because you don't get to the point of chopping off your own arm if there's another easier solution. If there's another way to escape and rescue yourself from it, you'll find the easiest way. And the fact that he spent five and a half days stealing himself to cut his arm off meant that he tried everything else to get it off his arm and couldn't. There was no other way. This was the only possibility, the fact that he did it. In fact, it took 20 men some months later to go back and using ropes and all to try and rescue his hand. Now, here's the deal. God sends his only son, his beloved son, to die on a cross, the most gruesome death, bearing the weight of human sin upon himself. So horrendous that he cries out the night before, take this from me. Do you think that there could have been another way? Do you imagine that you can front up before God and say, look, I don't know why you did all that cross stuff, because I figured all I had to do was be decent and not kill anyone, and I'll be okay with you. And God says, what was I therefore thinking? If all it took to get to heaven was being a decent person and never murdering anyone, why did I send my son to die? The fact that I sent my son to die meant that for all eternity I tried to find another way and there's no other way to save sinners out from the holy just wrath of God. There is no other way, that's why we paid such a price. And the fact that Jesus died says that your feeble efforts to make yourself right will be of no account. Do not imagine that you confront up before God. And and while the Lord Jesus is standing there with the wounds and the scars that he received from having died, don't imagine you confront up unforgiven without having trusting in the death of Christ and say, here I am, I should be okay the Holy God will look at His Son and look at you and say, your sin is so serious, the only way to deal with it was through the death of my Son. What makes you think you can come here unforgiven? Friends, heaven forbid that any of us imagine people can get right with God apart from trusting in the death of Jesus. That's why we do Summerfest. There is no other way to be saved. There's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. And the fact of what God paid in the death of His Son tells you sin must be so serious. The holy righteous judgment of God must be so serious that the only way to be saved is by putting yourself, throwing yourself on the mercy of God in Jesus. If we don't preach Jesus, people are lost. If you don't come to Jesus, you are lost. There is no other hope. You see, there's the second thing, the need that we have to be saved and the only way to be saved, the cross of the Lord Jesus. That brought about a new song that it was possible to purchase. Now, let me give you the third and last. The third and last implication of seeing the language of new song that changed the heavens is the centrality of the cross in life. Now, if, you're, if you've sort of been sleeping a little, I want you to wake up now because this one's the big one and it's kind of tricky to get. We are born into a very impressive world. Creation is impressive God as creator is an astonishing truth. Our experience of life is constantly keeping creation truth in front of us. The beauty of creation, the richness of creation, how lovely it is to enjoy creation, just the surf and the sea and the sun and all the rest just keeps saying to you how living in a, in a beautiful place is wonderful. But I want you to notice from chapter 5 verse 9 that heaven is focused on a new thing, The cross. Of Christ and God's work to save. It's the cross and God's work to save that eclipses the wonder of creation and eclipses the centrality of creation in the praise of His people. It's the Lamb who is now seated on the throne as the Lamb. That word of Jesus is used 28 times through the book of Revelation to remind us that the very center of the universe is the Lamb. The sacrificial dead one who was raised to life again. He is now in eternity with the scars forever marking his resurrection body, reminding the universe of his readiness to humble himself to the will of his father at such a cost to save sinners. That has an impact on us now. In fact, it should change the way we see life. Now, let me explain what I mean. You can grow up as a person creation-centered, where life is about enjoying creation and the experiences of creation and making the most of this world, travelling and getting the best kind of house and the great job and, you know, enjoying creation. Christianity can be creation-centred. It can be about being saved, but being saved so that I can now be free to enjoy creation more. Yes, I'll praise God for salvation and the cross and the death of Jesus and then get back to creation and enjoying it again. So creation's at the centre of my life and my consciousness with an awareness of Jesus and his death and how wonderful that is but all of that so that I can then travel and enjoy and have great family life and so on. We can have creation-centred Christianity but Christianity is meant to be cross-centred with the enjoyment of creation on the side, as the fill around life. At the centre is meant to be a growing awareness of the cross-centred heart of God, who at heart is about seeking and saving the lost, who was prepared to give up his very self to die to save sinners, for whom the mission impulse is central to his heart, whose heart is for men and women of every nation to be saved. And that's the heart of God that pushes all other concerns aside. And creation ends up merely the place for this salvation work to work out. Not merely. It is to be enjoyed. God gives us all good things to enjoy, but not as the centre with the mission concern added on, but with winning the world at the centre. And the enjoyment of creation as you're able enjoying and so on. We're to see the world through the cross as God's greatest act, greater than creation, greater than the incarnation. Brothers and sisters, this has implications there for four things, for your prayer life, for your giving, for your relationship to church and your energies and efforts. And we haven't got time to go through them all, but let me just give you a taste. If you understand creation-centered Christianity versus cross-centred Christianity, creation-centred Christian prayer life will be different to cross-centred prayer life. Cross-centred prayer life will be centred around praying for the cause of the gospel, praying for missionaries, praying for the health and vibrancy of church life, praying for people to be saved, and also praying for your health, for your job, for your relationships, and your daily bread. Creation-centred Christians will spend the dominant thing of their life praying about their friends and their health and their job and sometimes praying about missionaries. See the difference? Cross-centred Christians are focused centrally on the work of the Gospel with other concerns always prayed about. Creation-centred Christians raise their money, think about their jobs to spend on their house, on their car, on their travels and give some when they're able To gospel work. Cross-centered Christians think about raising money and funds and so on so that I've got more to be able to give to gospel work and I need a house and I need a car and I can have a travel, of course, there's things I can enjoy but the centre of my giving and my thinking is the cross and the work of the gospel. Church is the fruit of the work of the gospel and so central. Now my question to you tonight is, Which are you, a creation-centred Christian or a cross-centred Christian? Which are you? Now, many of you are on the Summerfest team, so in one sense, it's a good week to ask the question because you'll be able to say, well, I'm here. Make it a life pattern that you commit yourself to gospel work. That you centre your life around the work of seeking and saving the lost. And you enjoy things as you're able, but give yourself to the, gro- to the central work of the gospel, because that's what brought about the new song in heaven. Let me pray, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the astonishing thing that you have done in the sending of your Son. You thank you that by we thank you that by His blood shed, you have purchased men and women to serve you, to be saved. And we pray that you might do that more and more amongst us and around us. Please help us capture your heart and centre ourselves on the work of the Gospel. Please help us be cross-centred Christians. We pray for much blessing through this week. In Jesus' name, Amen.